Hey everyone, welcome back to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined today by Digital Book World's own Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, what's the haps? Uh, nothing much, Michael. What's the haps with you? Um, weather here is really awesome. It's blue skies, like 14 degrees C. Life's beautiful. Good to hear. Yeah. So, um, I guess like the big stories that have, you know, permeated the industry, I guess, in the last week had to do with Barnes & Noble and Microsoft. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So Barnes & Noble is no longer going to be working on its Windows uh, Windows 8 app. And there's been a lot of speculation that, that will extend to any other Windows app. So for instance, a Windows phone app. And Microsoft is going to be building its own uh, reading app. Um, and it's going to be powered, uh, at least in part, by Nook at this point. And I think the larger story is, you know, Nook is uh, looks like it's pulling back a little bit uh, from the ebook retail market uh, as it continues to sustain some pretty big losses. Yeah, I guess part of the reason why uh, this is all happening is uh, Microsoft invested, you know, both $300 million in a Nook uh, on the understanding that uh, Barnes & Noble would have a really polished Nook reading app for Windows 8, but would also read, uh, release a mobile app for their line of new Windows phones. And I think Barnes Noble was a little bit late to the party. They never had other reading app available for the launch of Windows 8, which, you know, they didn't meet the milestone deadlines from Microsoft, nor have they ever even released a beta product of the Windows Phone app. And I think Microsoft was just a little bit pissed off that, you know, you can put $300 million into a company and they can't even develop reading apps on time. You know, where, where are your priorities? So I think Microsoft instead of relying on Barnes & Noble as a brand to fuel growth, I think Bar uh, Microsoft really wants to sort of phase out that Barnes & Noble name and have like a, an Xbox reading app or a Microsoft branded reading app because this way, no matter really what happens to Barnes & Noble, Microsoft could obviously find somebody else to maintain the app uh, for them. I guess the content will actually get pulled from Barnes & Noble in terms of book sales, but I think Microsoft really wants to make this the definitive Windows 8 reader, so they really want to support PDFs and EPUBs and uh, all of those formats. So uh, it's unknown on how the logistics of this app will work out, whether people will be able to upload their own eBooks and read them uh, through the Windows 8 reading app, or whether it'll just be uh, books purchased from the you know the bookstore it's really unknown at this time, but we do know that, you know, Microsoft really wants to go ahead with their own branded reading app and sort of phase out that Barnes & Noble uh, name. So one interesting aspect of um, the publishing industry right now is uh, a number of studies that have been released. Uh, BookNet and Pew have both uh, released, you know, comprehensive studies on the Canadian publishing market and also the library market. Uh, you've had a look at some of these reports. Um, anything interesting that uh, they've stated? Well, for the first time, I think we're seeing a comprehensive look at the publisher marketplace in Canada. And Canada's market is a lot like the U.S. market. Um, probably the main difference of what's going on e-reading in Canada and the U.S. is, you know, of course, the size, but, but also that Kobo is sort of the either number one or number two player in the marketplace uh, challenging Amazon 
uh, up in Canada. And so uh, what BookNet Canada found is, I think, unsurprising considering where the U.S. market is. Um, you know, 90% of Canadian publishers are producing e-books. Uh, maybe the only surprise there that it's not closer to 100%, although the remaining 10% uh, plan to produce e-books in the future or they're in the process of doing so. Um, about one in five have their full list available as e-books right now. Um, and about the same proportion have developed enhanced e-books um, or have produced at least uh, one app. Um, one of the interesting findings of the study I thought was that you know ebook retailers like Amazon and Kobo are still the main way that publishers in Canada make the most revenue, but 12% of publishers surveyed reported that they get the most revenue from direct sales. Uh, which is something that is starting to take off here in the U.S. as publishers try to generate, you know, direct relationships with consumers. What about the Pew study on libraries? Uh, any surprises there? So this was focused on the U.S. and the way patrons, library patrons, engage with libraries in the U.S. And I think that that you know there aren't a lot of surprising things here. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with libraries and what's happening with them right now, it might surprise you to learn that you know young people um, are heavily invested in libraries, but also people who are very technologically engaged. You know, people who have the means uh, to access technology in a significant way are, are among the most invested in libraries and using libraries the most. So, for instance, if you're an urban person who has you know a series of devices and you read eBooks and you you know you have access to tons of information, a lot of it that you pay. For for, you know, you're, you're likely to be among the most avid supporters of libraries and library users. Um, you know, those with lower incomes or are less techno technologically savvy, uh, even though they probably could benefit more from libraries, are not in general among the most avid library patrons. One interesting thing that I saw was uh, libraries are starting to uh, get digital textbooks. Um, last week, Overdrive signed an agreement with Pearson to bring uh, a number of textbooks into the libraries. Up until this point, we've really only seen ebooks, uh, audiobooks, and some streaming video. Do you think that people will be attracted to digital more now that academic textbooks are available? I don't think that this is a game changing. Uh, difference for libraries. I don't think that you know this is going to make people say, "Oh, we need to uh, you know go to libraries more." And I don't think this is a game-changing thing for e-textbooks either. I think the, the key for e-textbooks to really take off, and what people have been looking for, is for that trifecta of teachers, administrators, and students to start really uh, going after it. Now we know administrators are very um, interested in, in adopting e-textbooks for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, if it can be worked right, it's easier to distribute them, um, it's easier to manage that process, and the thinking is that it will be cheaper. Um, on the, the professor side, it's, it's sort of mixed. You know, some professors are, are all in. They've chosen e-texts that they really like um, that, that either replace or enhance what they do in print. Um, and some professors uh, haven't really adopted them yet. But that, they're a pretty positive group also when it comes to e-textbooks. The sort of key thing that's missing is students. Um, you know, students are reporting uh, that they don't generally use e-textbooks. Uh, they don't have particularly high reviews of e-textbooks yet, um, but the thinking in the industry, which has invested very heavily in going digital, uh, is that this is going to change and that students eventually will adopt e-textbooks. And I think this year, based on the latest reports from the Book Industry Study Group, more than uh, previous years, we've seen a little bit of an uptick in that interest among students. I don't know if you heard about this, but 
I remember last year, uh, Stephen King released a book called Joyland. And uh, at the time, he was saying that we don't want to go digital with this one. It's print only. We want to get people supporting bookstores. Do you remember that? Absolutely. So apparently, a year later, uh, with uh, the paperback version of it, they're finally going digital. Um, well, that that's unsurprising. I mean, I think that you know, even if you have this sort of support bookstore stance, um, you know, eventually I think you want to, you know, bring the work into more formats. And if you're going to go paperback, uh, you know, digital obviously makes a lot of sense too. Um, you know, I think that if if authors want to do that but still support bookstores, they can make sure uh, to sell through platforms that also partner with bookstores, like for instance Kobo. Yeah, you know, this is actually opens up a, a pretty cool debate because I remember reading something not too long ago about uh, James Patterson contributing a few million dollars to uh, bookstores. And mm -hmm. it, it seems like more authors are coming out and either supporting bookstores with making their books uh, tangible only or throwing a bunch of money or uh, just drawing attention to uh, the, you know, the plight of bookstores, whether they're secondhand stores or indie bookstores or, you know, whether they're chains like, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble. Do you think that this is a part of a greater movement to, you know, basically you know, make people forego digital in the hopes that they could sustain the brick and mortar bookstores? You know, I think that, I'm not sure I would say it exactly the same way you said it, but, but the short answer would be yes. Um, I think that it's not about making people forego digital. I think it's about making people realize the value of bookstores. Um, there is, as we all know, this uh, effect called showrooming where people will go into bookstores and look at the books and talk to the, the shop clerks and then go and buy the book online or go and buy the ebook, really cutting the bookstore out of the transaction and you know deriving a lot of value from the experience that the bookstore uh, provides. Um, and I think that you know there's nothing that gets people to go somewhere to buy something uh, more more than exclusivity. So if something's only available through a bookstore, uh, then you have to, to get it there. So I think maybe it's part of an effort to get people into bookstores so they can realize the value of bookstores and, and support them more. Um, but I don't think any author realistically thinks that they can turn the tide on in digital, but maybe it, they think that they can help bookstores uh, reap a little bit more of the rewards of, of the way things happen these days. You know, we, we've talked a lot about a you know, different reports about more publishers going digital in Canada. Um, you know, we both have written about uh, a lot of uh, digital bestsellers hitting the market. And do you think that bookstores are, are on the ropes? You know, uh, the second largest bookstore in Germany uh, has uh, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, Borders filed for bankruptcy. You know, we're, we're living in a time when major chains that have been going on for a lot of years have suddenly said, you know, we're throwing in a towel. We just can't do this anymore. Do you think that the bookstore industry in maybe North America and Western Europe, do you th really think that they're in more trouble than they're letting on? Um, you know, the industry as a whole does seem to be on the ropes a little bit. But, you know, I think that most bookstores themselves 
um, are you know single or are single stores operated by uh, independent owners, and it varies widely from store to store. We saw that in 2013, uh, bookstores, the surviving ones in the U.S. at least, had their best years ever, um, and that uh, I think is a testament to the, some of the enterprising owners who have survived some of the cullings of the past few years where many bookstores closed, and they know how to sell books and they know how to be savvy about it. Um, there's a talk that there's sort of a backlash against digital and people are going back to bookstores more. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think, I think the bookstores have seen uh, an uptick in sales and an uptick in traffic uh, because they uh, provide a good service, and the ones that are still around have, have found a way to survive. Um, so I think that it varies widely from store to store. Now, because books is such a small industry, um, if you look at something like Barnes & Noble, which has you know, 700 or so, 600-something um, consumer-facing bookstores, then uh, if, if you think about that business as a whole and you wonder what they're going to do if, if they decide, if Barnes & Noble decides to, you know, quote-unquote, throw in the towel, I think that would be something where you could sort of take a look at the larger market and say that there's something happening there because there's so many stores. But I don't think that's going to happen to Barnes & Noble anytime soon. I mean, we've seen from its reports that the bookstores are um, very, they do very well, and they are, they're better than solvent. They're quite profitable. Um, it's Nook that's really been dragging down Barnes & Noble earnings. Uh, so I don't think that bookstores are really throwing in the towel, and, and I don't think in this country uh, a concern like Barnes & Noble is going to go out of business anytime soon. You know, as much as we, we talk about digital, um, you know, publishers have been releasing a lot of statistics lately, like uh, Hachette has said that 30% of their revenue now comes from ebooks, and um, publishers on the whole are starting to see uh, more of their uh, revenue come from digital, but it's still not going to, like, it's still not surpassing print, so I definitely think that there's bookstores aren't going anywhere anytime soon. You know, some of them might be in trouble due to mismanagement or, you know, the showrooming effect or... But I think, like, all in all, more people are buying physical books than they're buying digital books. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. People are still buying way more physical books than digital books. Um, you know, well, way over half. In certain categories and certain titles, uh, the gap is closer, and there may be books that are even more popular in digital than they are in print. Um, but, you know, Mark Coker, the founder and CEO of Smashwords, which is a very large uh, indie author, indie book distributor, um, has predicted that in, in not too long, I believe it was 2020, that half of all books sold will be self-published. And I think that that predicts a major paradigm shift in the industry. And if you look at, you know, the, the, what we know about self-published e-books, which is not that much, to be honest, in the context of the whole industry, it's not so hard to imagine that he might be right, except for one thing, which is that right now, self-published e-books are just generally not sold in bookstores, uh, and they're not sold physically as much as they are digitally. So I think that if you do think that Coker is right, that self-published e-books are taking, or self-publishers and indie authors are going to have that much market dominance in, in six years, you have to assume that these independent bookstores and Barnes and & Noble and others are going to find a way to stock uh, self-published titles, or else people are going to be buying so few books in, in bookstores that it doesn't make that much of a difference. Speaking of self-publishing, Barnes & Noble has a self-publishing platform called Nook Press, which was uh, released last year in April, and it was a follow-up to Pubit, which was their 
self-publishing platform, but they never really promoted it or uh, upgraded it or, you know, did really anything with it other than just say, hey, you know, we have a self-publishing platform too, guys. Look at us. But uh, I guess apparently uh, Teresa Horner, who's in charge of Nook Press, uh, she is in the UK for an unveiling event where uh, Barnes & Noble Nook Press will be formally unveiled tomorrow uh, on the 18th and for the first time will be outside of the US and writers that live in the UK or the surrounding areas like you know Ireland and Scotland and things like that will be able to uh, self-publish titles and sell them in on the UK website but they'll also be able to sell the titles in the US um, do you think that this is a good move? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that has been able to fuel growth for ebook retailers internationally is by bringing the self-publishing um, phenomena to, the, to that, those countries that they go into. Um, we've seen Amazon have success doing that, and uh, we've seen growth of self-publishing in places like Germany and India. Um, and I think that you know authors there are probably not all that different from authors here. There probably is a uh, a very large group of people who want to write books, uh, but are have been unable to secure the kinds of distribution you need to sort of credibly uh, be an author and, and have. Um, you know, and, and have the ability to reach a wide audience, uh, and self-publishing does that exactly. It solves that problem for those authors. So I think if Nook wants to be serious about being in other countries, that, that is absolutely an important part of the process. Barnes Noble has said that they are looking to use the UK as a launching point for Nook Press, and by the end of the year, they want to go into France, Germany, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and Belgium. Do you think it's realistic to think that they'll actually move into those countries? Because I remember when they first started selling ebooks in the UK, they they listed all those countries as uh, markets where they want to make the e-readers available, that they want to open up localized bookstores. Uh, that never really panned out. So when they say that they want to bring Nook Press into those countries, I have a little bit of trepidation uh, in believing them just because I've, I've heard this song and dance before. I mean, if you're an observer and you're looking at what is happening at Nook right now, uh, it's very hard to believe that the company is going to exist in, in its current form beyond the end of this year or certainly beyond the end of last year unless it really uh, is able to, to go into new markets and start selling ebooks profitably. Um, and that's another good reason that Nook Press is a great is a great spearhead for Barnes and Noble uh, in general and, and self publishing for for other ebook retailers. Uh, you know, self published ebooks are generally, by their very nature, profitable. Uh, the the uh, author gets a cut and the retailer gets a cut, and, and sometimes there's discounting and special sales, but usually it's a straight you know 70 percent, 30 percent or so split between the two. Um, you know, so I think that. You know, we're, from the outside, it looks to us like Nook might be going under or throwing in the towel. But if you're working there, you know that that mindset probably hasn't. At least I should hope it hasn't been part of your thinking. Um, so I do think that it's possible that Nook launches in those countries and launches Nook Press in those countries. Uh, I do think also that it's possible that the company goes out of business in the next nine months. I've always thought that self-publishing was an excellent way to facilitate growth, especially for Barnes & Noble. Um, but a month ago, I wrote a piece on uh, if I was in charge of Barnes & Noble, what would I do? And I would use their, their Pubit or their Nook Press 
platform as a way to fuel growth because you could enter these countries without having to iron out agreements with all of your publishing partners and you know sign new agreements with like local small presses or you know the local publishers to get you know localized content you could lead the charge with self publishing because it's basically crowdsourced books you know you don't have to do anything other than just like open up a platform where people could upload books and submit them and put them on sale if you're opening them up in France and you have a bunch of French authors contributing books all of a sudden you have a French bookstore that's populated with French books as well as all the other books that people have published in different territories so I have always thought that you know, as a precursor to official expansion, it's always better to expand with self-publishing because really all you have to do is just like open up a localized version of your self-publishing platform and then have a section where indie books could be available. I mean, what else is more simpler really than that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good assertion. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's probably a little bit more complex than you're making out to be here, though, because of language. So, you know, opening up a localized version of a platform like that, you know, involves more than just kind of translating uh, your, your current version. I mean, there's customer service to consider. Um, there's, you know, subtleties in the way people do business locally to consider. And, and I do think language is, is an issue, not only with uh, running a platform like Nook Press, but also with, with ebook retailing. So they don't, you know, Nook doesn't have to go through the trouble of, you know, generating relationships with hundreds of new partners and publishers. Um, but it's, it's not exactly just like clicking a button and, and all of a sudden you have a new uh, ebook uh, distribution platform. I wish it was that easy sometimes. <laughs> Just like run your, your website through like Google Translate and there you go. <laughs> you have a localized exactly. version of the, that website. Um, exactly. You know, a lot of news, I guess, has been happening lately. Has there any, been anything compelling on, on, on your end in New York in, in the publishing industry lately? Um, you know, we've seen Penguin Random House continue to sort of slowly transition into being one company. Um, you know, I think one of the, the things that has yet to be resolved is there are going to be a lot of very competitive imprints. Uh, there were uh, always competitive imprints at companies like Penguin and Random House, and both companies had processes for determining how these imprints would compete with each other. You know, when they were both interested in one author and one title, you know, how they would resolve that that difference because, you know, obviously you don't want, um, if you are uh, the CEO of the company, you know, to have two imprints bidding against each other and sort of bidding up the price of a book when at the, the end of the day all the money is coming from and going to the same place. Totally. So, so um, from what I've heard, uh, those processes are being resolved uh, right now. And um, there should be, you know, a, a way, there is going to be a way, there is a way for Penguin Random House imprints to compete with each other um, that is most beneficial uh, to the company. I still think that we're going to see a little bit of a shakedown, though, in, um, you know, some publishers and some senior level editors that are going to find that they may not have a place um, in the new larger organization the same way they did in the smaller organizations. We talked about this a while ago. Um, Amazon was scaling back its New York uh, publishing division when uh, Larry Kirschbaum left. Has there been any like talk or any movement about that at all? Have you noticed? Um, well, we've noticed that Amazon has managed to get some of its own properties onto our ebook bestseller list at a rate that we hadn't seen before. 
Um, and we know that Amazon recently opened up a German language uh, imprint, Amazon Publishing imprint. Yeah. Uh, so those are so those are signs of expansion. I think that the first is really a sign of Amazon getting serious about marketing its own books. You know, Larry Kirschbaum made a little bit of a splash um, a few summers ago when speaking to an audience, I believe, in the Hamptons about Amazon Publishing. He basically said that uh, Amazon was going to – the books that were going to be recommended to you after you made a purchase or made a search would be Amazon Publishing books. And the company quickly backtracked from that and uh, you know, went to great lengths to say that that's not what's going to happen. I think that would be um, a vertical integration antitrust issue if it were to be the case. Um, but we're seeing now a lot of these Amazon books are sort of spiking onto the list and then dropping back down, and that's, uh, the speculation is that um, Amazon is uh, somewhat favoring its own titles in that uh, it's giving them you know, some promotional capabilities that maybe uh, it, 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 it's just sort of giving it to them versus other publishers have to pay for it. We don't really know. Um, so I think that Amazon Publishing is flexing more muscle this year, but I don't think that it's come upon a real hit yet. Um, you know, like what we're seeing, for instance, with the Divergent series from HarperCollins. The folks inside of that company are extremely happy and celebrating, and that book is just a runaway success right now. There's a movie being made of that soon. I've seen some trailers. Yeah, it comes out, I believe, on the 21st, if I'm not mistaken. How do you think it will do? Um, from what I've read, the speculation is that Hollywood is depending on Divergent to be sort of the next big young adult blockbuster. Uh, last year was considered a year when this, the young adult sort of movie, uh, you know, uh, movie situation cooled down a little bit. Um, but this year, Divergent is expected to take in as much as $60 million in opening weekend box office, which would put it on par with the first Twilight movie. We've, I guess, like we're seeing more young adult films being made. You know, after Twilight, there was The Hunger Games, and I mean, both of those movies did really well. And then later, some movies did better than others. I know they're doing a movie soon about uh, the whole Vampire Academy series. Uh, you know, it makes me wonder with so many of these sort of teen paranormal movies uh, coming out, do you think some will get lost in the shuffle, or do you think that they'll? You know, they'll all be profitable, if not blockbusters. Um, you know, it's really hard to say with movies. Movies are kind of like books in that, you know, you really need a hit, and it's sort of about generating those hits. Um, so I don't really know, and I think that the next layer of speculation is, you know, what will teams like? What will they respond to? Um, so I think it's really, really hard to say. Uh, you know, that said, in the past decade or so, in Hollywood, uh, fixes on an idea, fixates on an idea that works, and it really just plays that idea out. I mean, we saw that with uh, the, we're seeing that with the, the comic book movies and also the young adult movies. So uh, I don't know, and I think at the end of the day, um, the, the main thing that's going to, to determine whether something goes big or not, or whether something has a following or not, is, is quality. Um, and I think Hollywood executives would probably disagree with me because, as we know, marketing spend uh, can be very, very, very important uh, in Hollywood. Um, but I'd like to hope that quality will win out. So it's really impossible to predict, but we shall see. Um, speaking of movies, we may see a new Harry Potter movie coming out soon, um, although the it's – you know, obviously, I think I don't think that any of the stars from the first movies will be in it. But uh, J.K. Rowling just finished a script uh, for sort of the expanded Harry Potter universe. Did you hear about that? I have not heard about it. Tell me about it. Okay, so I guess 
we first heard about this when they did a new free Harry Potter book, uh, the history of the Quidditch uh, World Cup, and they put that up on uh, Pottermore. And um, I guess they, they did that, I guess, over just the course of, like, the last week. Um, yes, I saw that. So I'm looking for it right now on Google because I did not write about this, but I did hear about it. So I'm just uh, searching for it right now. You're talking about the, the Quidditch World Cup ebook. I'm not talking... I mean, uh, that just happened. But apparently, uh, she just finished a script for a new spin-off film. Uh, a Fantastic Beasts. And um, this was like a book that had come out years ago, but they wanted to make it um, as a standalone movie. And, um, you know, it'll have people, like, uh, from the expanded sort of universe, like uh, Luna Lovegood and, you know, things like that. So I don't think that, um, you know, like the stars from the first books or the first movies will be in this. It's sort of uh, a new trilogy of books on... Um, you know, sort of the, the fantastical monsters and, you know, things like that. So um, apparently she was just supposed to do a treatment on it, but she ended up just like writing the entire script, like going crazy because uh, I guess she's just a, a voracious writer. So I guess we're going to see probably in the next few years, at least, like a new sort of Harry Potter uh, films. And obviously those will probably do well, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at how people work with these sort of spin-off movies of these, these genres, they generally, I mean, I've seen to do pretty well. I look at the, the Hobbit movies, and those movies were have just been, I didn't even see the second one, but the first one was just god-awful, uh, yet it made its money. I thought um, so, too. Yeah, it was a terrible movie, uh, and yet it made its money playing off of, you know, the same universe that did very well uh, with The Lord of the Rings. Um so I think, you know, probably anything that J.K. Rowling touches will do well. I didn't read The Casual Vacancy, but I didn't hear that it was a great book. But the second that it came out that Rowling wrote it, it became an instant bestseller. Um, so I think, yeah, for sure, that the that has a very good chance of doing well. Um, you know, how long will it take, though? Let's say, you know, they make the Hobbit movies and they're all terrible, and they try to make some more J.R. Tolkien movies and they're all terrible. How long will it take before people catch on and decide that they don't want to see them anymore? Did you see the second Hobbit movie? I didn't see the second Hobbit movie, uh, so I really don't know whether it's good or not, but uh, if it's anything like the first, then it's probably terrible. Um, I agree. I really didn't like the first one. Mainly, I, I thought it was, you know, too kidsy, too cutesy, a little too Care Bears-esque. But I really liked the second one. Like, the second one was total redemption for, like, the franchise. Um, okay. Without giving any spoilers away, I thought it was, like, a little bit darker. Um, it was more story. And they didn't really have to... Um, focus too much on character development because they did that like in the first one and uh, mm -hmm. the second one was more like action and I think it was more true to um, the Hobbit novel but then also I guess like the Hobbit movies weren't just based on the Hobbit novel but it was on um, on, diff on different books that Tolkien had like written uh, either after the War of the Rings or uh, before 
I really dug it. I thought it was total redemption for like the franchise. So if you get a chance to watch it when it comes out in April, I think on Blu-ray and DVD, check it out. I think um, it may uh, turn the corner for you on uh, on those movies. But the reason why I guess I mentioned movies is that we're seeing a ton of young adult movies coming out. But we know from statistics that the majority of people that buy the young adult ebooks are adults. But and when they make young adult movies aimed exclusively at young adults i don't know if they do that well because for the most part it's like older older cats actually going to those movies because they've read the books um well you know i i think obviously there aren't enough uh you know kids in the world to to make up for those huge box office numbers that we're seeing from some of these movies um but you know i don't think that it's necessarily uh adults that are going to drive these films i think it's it's the kids who are going to drive the films yeah i mean i remember um when the twilight movies and the hunger game movies came out uh vancouver isn't really known as like a hotbed of of, of culture and cinema but there was lineups like two blocks long to get to those films like 24 hours in advance and i i never see that happen and so when you see lines like that happen in a town like this you know that those movies are going to do well yeah of course not surprised yeah so um I guess one last thing I want to talk about is, you know, a, a series of stories I guess we've written on uh, on this in the last, you know, few weeks, few months on uh, bestseller data in terms of uh, a lot of independent published books are suddenly making the bestseller lists um, within this calendar year. Obviously, there's more self-published books now than there's ever been before and if coker is right and by 2020 50 percent of all books published will be self-published do you think we'll ever encounter the day when we look at the new york times bestseller list and it's all just self-published indie books uh unless something drastic changes in the industry uh no unless you know coker is right that some 50 percent of books being published are self-published um, or, or or other similar things happen, like you know massive bookstore chain closures and, and bookstore closures. Uh, I don't think that we'll be seeing that. I think that you know the publishers, especially the very large ones, have been good about staying afloat uh, during the the digital age and the self publishing revolution. And I think they've been very smart about uh, figuring out ways to uh, continue to stay relevant and continue to make money. So uh, it would surprise me very, very greatly if that were to happen. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, books that are published. Um, if we look at author earnings data, which was done by Hugh Howey and some anonymous person, that 33% um, of all the bestsellers on Amazon were indie books. And um, we see about 38% of them that are big five, you know, published and the rest are from, you know, Amazon published, small, medium presses and things like that. Um, does this data make sense to you? Well, you know, I, I haven't seen that data, so I, I really shouldn't comment on it. But we have similar data um, that we look at uh, at, digital, at Digital Book World for the top 25. And among the top 25 best-selling e-books, you know, last year, especially in the first half of the year, we saw a lot of self-published e-books there. Uh, we saw, you know, I think 
22 in the first quarter and then 44 in the second quarter out of, you know, uh, a few hundred that hit the list. So not a huge proportion, but a, a very strong proportion. Um, and then it really slowed down in the second half of last year and the beginning of this year as the big publishers released some big, you know, uh, fall and, and holiday books. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing is that the big five are really still dominating that very top end of the list. And, um, you know, the self-publishers had a lot of success breaking in and at the beginning of last year, haven't really seen that success yet this year. So I don't really know what that data represents, if it goes to the top 100 or the top 1,000 or, or whatever it is. But the very, very top of the market, um, you know, the big publishers still dominate. And the reason I think that it's important to think about it that way is because, you know, the number one best-selling ebook in the U.S. is going to sell a lot more copies than the number five. Uh, a lot more copies. I mean, these lists go logarithmically. So, um, you know, the top 25 is by far the most important quartile out of the top 100. And, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, and of course they change day to day, but the top 25 bestsellers might outsell the next 5,000. Uh, we don't really know uh, because it changes so much. We don't have unit sales for individual titles. Um, but I, I really look at that very top end of the market to see you know, where changes are happening. Now, the long tail is obviously very, very important to look at as well, but I just don't have the data to do that right now. All right, guys, you've been listening to the Giddy Reader Radio Show. Jeremy and myself do the show every Monday. So if you want to keep abreast of what's happening in the digital publishing ebook world, uh, you want to stay tuned to both of our websites uh, every uh, Monday as we uh, have this show available for everyone to listen to. Uh, you can listen to it online on the website, and you can also uh, check out the podcast if you do the whole iTunes thing. And uh, if you have an iPhone or iPad, had. I know that this is by some upstart company named Apple. I don't know how many of these devices are out there, but I heard that there's about less than 100. So if you are one of the lucky few to have an iDevice, you may want to check that out on iTunes. Uh, Jeremy, before we wrap up the show, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Yeah, I'd love to see everybody uh, attend the last two in our series of ebook production webcasts this month. We've got one tomorrow at noon Eastern time, and then next Tuesday at noon Eastern time. Uh, the one tomorrow focuses on sort of laying the groundwork for really good ebook production code. You know, some things you want to do initially when building an ebook that will, are going to help you down the line. And then one next week's a little bit more theoretical. It talks about workflows. Uh, we've got um, some great people from O'Reilly uh, coming in to talk about you know the the cutting edge digital workflows. Uh, in the next, uh, that, that are going to really change the industry uh, over the next uh, uh, several years. So I'd love to see everyone at that. You can get the details at store.digitalbookworld.com or just digitalbookworld.com. On our front, uh, we just unveiled uh, a brand new search option for our app store uh, where we have you know about 100,000 apps for Android and BlackBerry. And um, yeah, we've been working on this for months now. And uh, we finally got a really good, robust, dynamic searching option. Uh, in the past, we relied on uh, Google uh, for our apps. And you know with Google, when you upload something new, it takes a while before it's indexed, which means that if we uploaded a new app today, you might have not been able to find it on search for anywhere between a few days to a few weeks. And obviously, uh, the more apps that we add, Google would have a harder time finding our apps. So uh, we developed our own in-house searching option that will dynamically find apps. So as soon as we upload an app, it's available 
on search. So we're very happy about this in terms of like app discovery and things like this. Why didn't we do it sooner? Well, it was a huge undertaking and we have like a really complex download management system and it took a while to find the right cat to develop the system. So uh, you may want to check that out at apps.goodereader.com or you can click on the App Store link on our news website. You've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with uh, Michael Kozlowski and Jeremy Greenfield. Everybody take care.